just summarized everything God has done. And he's about to turn the corner and talk about what he's made new, this new community, this new people, and what life is like for those people. We're going to begin that next week. So if this week you're bored to death, come back next week. We'll talk about love and devotion. It'll be wonderful. But uh, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. And, and tonight we're talking about worship. We're talking about worship. And worship is a, a sort of a funny thing. Even the word is funny. Just say it. Go ahead and say it. Worship. Yeah, it just sort of flies off the tongue. And if you're like from Western Pennsylvania, some people say war, war, worship. War. It's really weird. And, and also in our, in our 21st century American post-secular, post-modern, post-post, post-whatever, we, uh, th- this is the very idea of the word worship almost sounds like religious fanaticism. Um, scripture comes at this from a different point of view, which is it, it says that everyone is a worshiping creature. Every human worships. It's, it's built into our DNA in some sense. We don't always worship rightly. In fact, we seldom do. The question is, what are we going to worship? And why should we worship the God of the Bible? So, uh, if you will, turn to Romans 11. Or follow along here. That really is Romans 11. Um, this is a long text. We're going we're gonna to read it all and then work through it quickly. So, uh, bear with me as we read this long and uh, difficult text. Okay, Paul asks, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? That Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvations come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means as riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of you, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As it regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. As it regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Great Heavenly Father, we have not only a large text, but a hard text. And we pray that you give us sharp minds and soft hearts. And that you would be at work, Lord, giving us understanding and soft hearts to receive your good news. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, you may have seen this recently. There was a list of like the most dangerous hikes in the world. And, and the winner of this list was this mountain in China, which I can't pronounce. Huashan, H-U-A-S-H-A-N, Huashan Mountain. And any of you see this? Yes, it's pretty frightening. So first, you have to take a number, of, a number of trams to get to the mountain, to the path. And then you tiptoe along the path. And the path is a winding, hand-built, wooden plank that skirts around the outside of the mountain. The mountain is basically a sheer pillar in some ways. And someone was nice enough to like nail some two-by-fours together and bolt them to the side of the mountain. So you are tiptoeing along this thin ledge, holding onto a chain. You do that for quite a while as you make your way around the mountain. Then at some point that ends, and someone was nice enough to dig little toe holes about yay shallow into the rock face. And you, and you put your feet there, and you climb up a chain a little bit further. And then you get to the ridge of the mountain, which is really narrow, sheer steep falls on both sides. And someone was nice enough to cut 5,500 stairs, what is the steepest staircase in the world. And so you climb 5,500 stairs to the steepest top of this mountain. All to get to the top. And now once you're there, if you've ever climbed a mountain, what you normally do is you, t- you take in the scene. It's amazing. You have a wonderful perspective. And also, if you climb this mountain, you would probably, at least I hope, stop and think about who in the world did all that work to enable me to get here. Who, who did all that stuff? cut the hills and the steps and put the planks up. But on this mountain, you would do something else, too. You would, you would drink tea at a tea house. They built a tea house, a formal monastery, up at the top. Now, what we have in chapter 11 is sort of like this. 
Paul, through these 11 chapters, has led us, at times torturously, but certainly adventuresomely, through this grand scope of everything that God has done. And here in like chapters 8 through 11, we're on top of the mountain surveying all that God's done to make his people right. It's a grand view. And um, in, in chapter 12, he's going to start talking about community and life in this new community of the people of God. And if we're not careful, in between Paul's theology and then the community, and some of you love the theology, and some of you just want to live in the community and enjoy it, we will miss where we are right now. It is as if someone took the tram, walked the little rickety planks, climbed the chain, climbed the steps, got to the top, said, T, that's what I came here for, and went right back down without taking one second to adore, adore all the beauty around them and all the work someone's done. And that's the danger for us, that we can be on top of this mountain, if you will, of all that God's done, looking at it or thinking about life in the community and fail to worship. Fail to worship what God has done to get us to the top of the mountain and fail to worship all the work he's done and is doing right now. So we're going to talk about worship. And I'm going to simply ask the question, why should I worship this God of the Bible? And I'm not really trying to answer that question fully. It's just a question that I'm asking from this text. I think this text gives us some answers, and not all the answers, but it's some good ones. And what we're going to see is this text tells us that God has a grand plan. There's a grand plan. There's a gracious plan. And that we are recipients of his riches. So, uh, first, God has a grand plan. One of the reasons we should worship him is because God has a grand plan. And perhaps one of the ways for us to to think about this and to try to make this text exciting is uh, imagine. Imagine a general sitting down, and, and there's a huge war about to be fought. There are people that need to be rescued. There's a war being fought, and you don't know the plan. And you've been gathered into the war room, and you're gathered around the table, and he pulls out the tube, and he spreads the map in front of the table, and he gathers you around. That's what Paul's doing right now. This is the grand plan for how God's going to bring his people and how he's going to rescue them. And, and the question that we're asking as we gather around the map is, is he going to rescue them at all? Because in verse 1, the question that's being asked to Paul is, hey, Paul, uh, God's people, historically the Jews, they, they, they're, they're not embracing the king. God made a promise that he would send the king from them, Jesus, but they've rejected him. So are you going to reject them? Has God rejected them? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. Let me show you the map. Let me show you the plan for how God's going to bring his people and bring blessing to the world. And and what this plan that he shows us uh, entails first is God's faithfulness to his promises. You see it in verse 1. You see it in verses 1 through 10. There is a plan to begin with because God has made promises. He's made promises to bless the world through his people, the Jews, and he's faithful to them. They've rejected the king, and people want to know, what you, what's going to happen to these people? Has God given up on them? And Paul says, absolutely not. Who do you think I am? Paul's first answer to the question, is God given up on the Jews, is no. Look at me. Last I checked, I'm Jewish. Last I checked, I, I was killing Christians like 20 years ago. I was trying to kill them all. I hated them. I, I put them to death. By, I stoned one of them. God has been faithful to his promises. He brought me to himself. 
So that's one way in which God has been faithful. He's still pursuing his people. And, and then he goes on and continues and says, let me, let me tell you a story, everyone. Um, you know, as someone that loves the Jews, this is Paul speaking, in the last couple of chapters he talked about how much he loves them. He's sad that they won't embrace the king. It breaks his heart. He even says, if I could, I would give myself for them. I would die for them. That reminds me, there used to be this prophet named Elijah. Similar place. Felt like he was the only one left. The only one. that Everyone else had rejected God. He despaired of life. He wanted to die. And God came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing? I've got 7,000 people that are mine. A remnant. And that's exactly where Paul goes now. He says, he spread out the map. And as he looks at the world, he's saying, okay, these people that are supposed to know and love God, they've rejected him. And Paul says, no, there's a remnant. God's got people over there. Those are his people. He knows them. He saved them. He's working them. God has people he's working in. They're there. There's a remnant. But then he goes on and says, there's a plan, but it's provocative. This is God's plan for how he's going to get his people back. Both Gentiles, those that aren't Jewish, that don't know him, that don't have all the privileges of having been Jewish, and the Jews who rejected them. It's provocative. It's actually a little risky. And he talks about this over and over, and we get it first in verse 11. Uh, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means through their trespass, that is, the Jewish rejection of the good news, salvation's come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, what Paul is saying is, I've seen this in my experience, guys. I go to towns, and because the promises were to the Jews, wherever I go, I go to a town, the first thing I do is I go to the Jews. I go to the synagogues and say, the God of Israel, this is what he's like. He sent his king. You should embrace him. And sometimes they listen, and sometimes they try to kill me. And so when they try to kill me, I go to the Gentiles. And when I go to the Gentiles, they believe. They believe. They embrace Jesus. And I still long for the Jews to come to Jesus. And you know what? When these Gentiles, who were far from God, who were messy pagans, embrace the gospel and begin to have all the blessings, forgiveness, adoption, God begins to reorder and beautify their broken families and societies. Sometimes the Jews look at that and say, they got my blessings. Man, they got, they got all the good stuff. I'm supposed to have that good stuff. It makes them jealous. And God is saying through Paul, that's the plan. That's part of the plan. That God will use the hostility of the Jews to bring the whole world, the nations, to him. And then use those blessings to the nations to actually draw those who are hostile to the gospel to him. It's a provocative plan. And it's grand in scope. We see this in verse 15 uh, and in verse 25 and in a couple different places. I'm just going to point it out. If their rejection, meaning the Jews, means the reconciliation of the world. And here it means all kinds of peoples, all kinds of nations. Again, in verse 25, I want you to understand, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come there. And you get this language of fullness and here you get an idea how grand God's plan is. God's not out to save a few people from a few nations, from a few countries. He's after the world. And you get a real wonderful picture of it in, in Revelation chapter 5, where we're told that people from every tribe and tongue and nation, all kinds of people from everywhere, are gathered around Jesus, that God has been working to bring all them in. And then he tells us, not only that, but the, but the Jews, lots of them. In verse 26, 
He calls it all Israel, that they will also embrace Jesus. I don't think he means every Israelite, but at large scale, a bunch of people, their Jews, will come to embrace Jesus. And what this means is when you hear, maybe you've said this yourself, and I'm going to call BS, bull crap on you. I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. But um, um, you, you, I hear this often. Ah, Christianity, it's just a religion for like middle class white Europeans and Americans. That is absolute nonsense. I hear this often. It's, it's absolute ignorant nonsense. Listen to me. Christianity is a Jewish religion. It started in Palestine. It's a Jewish religion. It started in the Middle East. We, if you're Gentiles, you are outsiders invited into the family. And, and not only is it a Jewish religion, it's now a global religion. Christianity, the church, is the most global, ethnic, multicultural organization in the world. And nothing will ever beat it. Nothing. There's nothing more multicultural and beautiful than the church. And that is God's grand plan. Well, uh, why should you worship? Well, one of the reasons you should worship is it's because it's God's grand plan to have all kinds of different people worshiping him from all over the world. And because a plan this great has a great planner. It's an amazing plan. It's scope. Uh, Paul will conclude this chapter in verse 33 and 34 by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of God's wisdom and knowledge that he would make a plan like this. Verse 34, who's known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? You couldn't cook up a plan like this, oversee it, make it happen, and God is doing it. He is worthy of our worship. It's a plan that's also gracious. And uh, you see this when we consider what we bring to the table. Uh, Paul sort of introduces the idea or the image of a table in uh, verses 8 and 9 and 10. Uh, David seems to paint this picture of a table becoming a snare. It doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. You, know, you sit down to a table and it traps you? How does that happen? Um, but I, I think perhaps what, what's happening is uh, we can think of it this way. We're at the table, being invited to the table by God. And what do we think enables us to be there? What right do we have to be there? And it's our natural inclination when we sit down with important people at a table to think, I've got to bring my A game. I really belong here. I've got to bring my goods, my resume. I've got to drop into the conversation my awesomeness somehow, you know, discreetly, but I don't know I belong here. I'm not a scrub. And, and what Paul wants to say, and what he does say in verse 5 is, it's not your works. You, you're not at this table because you belong. If you think it's based on your works or your, or your merit, that somehow God looked at your resume and said, oh, you're a great person. You should come sit at my table. You got it all wrong. It's grace. In fact, he says in verse 30 and 32, what you actually bring to the table, what we all bring to the table, we're really good at this, is disobedience. Verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but you've now received mercy. Verse 32, God's condemned all to disobedience that they may have mercy on all. He's saying, hey, when we look at resumes, I mean, I know y'all, I love y'all, y'all are great, you're smart. But you, we all got this in common. We don't do what we're supposed to. And God looks out over the scope and says, who am I inviting to my table tonight? Everyone is disqualified because none of them love me with their whole heart. They know my will and they don't do it. We're all disobedient. That's what we bring to the table. That's, 
It's worse than that. The way the language is described in verse 32, we're prisoners in disobedience. We've actually been convicted. We walked to the table with like a jumpsuit on with like the criminal numbers on our chest. I mean, that's who we are. We're we're criminals in God's eyes because of our disobedience. Uh, Or we could be seen that way if we don't embrace his grace. That's what we naturally bring to the table. And if we're not God's chosen people, the Jews, they began to plan with, if we're we're Gentiles, and most of us here are, um, we, we bring something else to the table. We, we bring the presumption that somehow we belong here, even though we are complete guests and outsiders. I thought about cutting this passage out when I read it in verses 17 to 24. It's agricultural about olive trees. Most of you don't care about olive trees. But it really makes this point really well. Paul is saying, hey, Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles in Rome. I'm talking to you, Gentiles. You're not, most of you aren't Jewish. Um, if you are part of God's family, it's because there were some people, Jews, who weren't faithful. And God took them and broke, broke them off the branch and threw them away. And he went over out in the middle of nowhere where you were and brought you into this one family and grafted you in. And then he goes on to say this. And you think you're crazy enough to belong. Not that you're crazy enough to belong, but you think you're there because you deserve it. Three times he warns them not to be proud. He warns them in uh, verse 18, verse 20, again in verse 25, lest you be conceited, lest you be proud. In other words, he's saying, hey, listen, some of you are going to think, I'm in the family of God. I'm one of the people. I'm at the table because I deserve to be here. I'm better than all those other people. And Paul's saying to you and to them, listen, Jack, you're part of a wild tree out in the middle of nowhere. You had no idea who the living God was. And God came and found you and brought the word to you, sent Jesus to you, and brought you to him and put you in the family. It's not because you deserved it. It's because he's gracious. This is the nature of God's gracious plan, that we have a place at the table by grace, by mercy, the work of Jesus. And Jesus is in this text. Uh, we see it in verse 25 and 26. He, he warns the, the Gentiles, he warns us not to be conceited, that we don't deserve a place. And he goes on to say that the reason that we can be hopeful for a place, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, is because the king, the deliverer, will come. He's talking about Jesus, who's come to forgive sins, to bring mercy to those who are disobedient. God's plan is to bring grace to everyone who needs it. And everyone needs it. The question is, will you receive it? Both Jews and Gentiles, all of us, we're in need of mercy and grace. That's how we join the family. That's how we get in. That's how we're forgiven. It's only by grace. I, uh, I got this story from someone else. One of uh, my pastor friends knows a guy who, uh, in his 20s, um, was this athletic, good-looking, gracious, mature Christian guy. He was the kind of guy every girl wanted to date, and so they all probably went to his Bible study. And um, he served Jesus, and he loved the church, and he was a good leader. He was well-liked. And then he got Hodgkin's, which is a curable but still very rough uh, period of, of chemo treatment involved. And as he went through chemo, he slowly began to lose everything. This is sort of your story, Becky. Um, and uh, 
you know, he, he lost his hair. He lost his good looks. He lost his athletic ability and strength for a while. Sadly, unpredictably, he lost some of his friends. People he thought would be there for him just didn't come. They, maybe they didn't know what to say. It was awkward. God forbid it's awkward. So they just don't come. And, um, and one day in the hospital, he had to get up and go to the bathroom. And uh, as he was walking to the bathroom to pee, he fell down. He could not go to the bathroom. And in his testimony, as he shared it with my friend Brian, is that there, lying on the floor, unable to get to the toilet, he got it, as he put it. He, he got it. He was, at that time, leading no Bible studies. He hadn't felt like praying in weeks. He was doing nothing for Jesus. There was not a single thing he could bring to the table. And he said, there, helpless, I realized God loved me just the same, unable to do anything for him. And to this day, this guy will tell you that he's thankful that God allowed him to get Hodgkin's because it showed him that it's all about grace. He had nothing to offer, and God loved him the same. That is the nature of God's gracious plan. You don't deserve it. He offers it anyway. So why worship? Why worship? Uh, it's because he has a grand plan. It's because he's gracious, and it's beautiful. You don't deserve it. He's offering you something you don't deserve. And uh, you should be motivated by love then, to be devoted to one that would love you in such a way that knows you so well and yet loves you. But this really involves us being willing to receive his riches. It's the last point. It's the fastest. It'll just take a moment. Here at the end of the text, Paul goes into this doxology. He, he just starts basically, like, I can imagine as he's writing this, he just starts bursting out into song in verses 33 through 35. Oh, the depths of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. He, he is praising God with the language of the Old Testament. It's just bursting out of his heart, out of his mouth, and uh, it's, he's talking about God's riches, his riches of wisdom, his grand plan, his riches of grace and mercy, his grace. And, and what Paul is saying here is that God has revealed his riches. God has been gracious enough to step out from behind the curtain of the world to walk into the world in human history and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. I actually want you to be able to know me. He chose a people to reveal himself to. He spoke to them. He gave us the Bible. He said, translate it into every language in the world. Let them all know what I'm like. It's part of my grand plan. To make it abundantly clear who I am, I will actually come in human flesh in the person of Jesus and show you what I'm like. The fullness of God, grace and truth in the person of Jesus. He has made himself clear. He's revealed himself. And what, what may be the case here at this point is you, know, you, you, you got all of that before you, that knowledge, that theology, that vision from the top of the mountain of all that God's done to reveal himself. And it might move you to wonder, not wonder like, oh, that's interesting. Well, you should do that. But to wonder like, oh, that's amazing. But leave you short of worship. It might leave you short of worship. And, and God is, he wants us to worship him because he wants us to love him because he, he loves us. This is the nature of a loving relationship. If I love you enough to send my son to die for you, I forgive you for my sins, I make you my child, I love you, I, I want to be loved in return. Uh, that's the nature of worship. And to do that, we have to receive him. We have to get the beauty 
of all that God has done, somehow inside of us. It's not enough to stand on top of the mountain and see all that God's done. Somehow we have to take that and put it in here. And it has to grow out of our hearts. You know, um, we're talking about theology, and we're talking about worship. And, and sometimes in our experience, they're separated. Like, you know, right now I'm talking about the Bible. It's sort of theological. In a few minutes, we'll sing another song, and it's sort of worship. But in other ways, they're even more separated sometimes. And, and it shouldn't be the case that they're ever really separated. Uh, you know, theology without worship, excuse me for my this provocative um, image. No, you shouldn't imagine just listen without imagining. Um, theology without worship is theological masturbation. Just reading the Bible to know more about God and to get to know him a little better because it's philosophical and it's sort of interesting without actually leading to knowing him and loving him, it's theological masturbation. It is getting a kick out of something without any intent of real relationship or intimacy. That's what masturbation is getting a kick out of something with, if you didn't know, without any inter, in, in, intimacy or relationship. Conversely, worship, singing happy songs, or singing sad songs, or just singing songs, without a real grounded theology, it isn't theological masturbation. It's going and sleeping with everybody. It's just saying, I want the experience of being close to something, anyone. And our worship and theology need to be wed together. Our worship should come out of a right understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And it's one of the reasons, uh, sometimes I get the question, most of you aren't brave enough to ask it. Like, why do we sing all these old boring songs? Or why do we sing all these songs with all these long words in them? Um, and uh, we don't do it because they're long and boring songs. We like them. But we sing the songs we sing because they are chocked full of the truth of who God is. We want our worship to be tied to our theology, that God's got a grand plan and a gracious plan, and he's amazing. So, you know, as we're up on top of the mountain right now with this grand view of all that God's done to make us right, all of this grand work he's done, um, the gracious nature of the plan, you, you might perhaps be like, well, that's pretty cool. You might have some wonder. You will not worship unless you realize, as you're standing on top of the mountain, about to sip your cup of tea, that the only reason you're on top of that mountain at all is because Jesus, Jesus, put you on his back and brought you there. If you're on top of the mountain right now, you know Jesus. You've experienced his grace. You've been forgiven. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you were born on top of the mountain. Um, it's not because you're more awesome than other people. It's, it's because Jesus figuratively has put you on his back, bore your sin, forgiven you, and brought you into the family. That is God's gracious, wonderful plan. And it's a good reason to worship. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, I thank you for these students that are 